welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hello, good morning, good evening, good night, whenever you're what, listening. Whatever it is, yeah. Uh, this is Jacob Machado here with... Father John Nepple, good to be with you. And I was just telling Father John, I told all the other guys they could lead the topics the last time through. And yeah, then, this is... Yeah, the way the schedule fell, I think three of the last four I've been leading the topic, so... We're going to change the name of the podcast to Catholic Stuff Jacob Machado Knows. Or Wants You to Know. Or Wants You to Know. Um, no, it's been good. I... Uh, yeah, we're just kind of flying through the uh, fall here. It's like, geez, it's already uh, tonight is Halloween as we're recording this. Um, you're likely going to be late for evening prayer, but uh, do I have permission? You Mr. have permission from the vice rector Mr. to be vice late. Rector. You have a weird existence like that. You know, Eusterman's your house father. You've known him forever. It's a little weird. Um, it's not not weird. Weird's the wrong word. It's just a. Uh, it's it's how, different. How did my brother describe you? It was like we were friends with you for all ten years that you were at Matchbuff High School, because <laughs> you were like perennially the sophomore and like the really mature well, my, sophomore. My older brother was there, so I was hanging yeah. out, and I was. Uh, yeah, I'd go after my baseball practices. I'd go hang out with the high school team. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, we were just kind of always around. Yeah, we were just talking about. Um, really not caring about Halloween at all. Uh, we got a big party tonight here, uh, and it's it used to be. I mean, there's some really, there's always some really great stuff every year, but um, yeah, and guys get really excited about you know putting together a costume. Uh, there's a costume contest on the theme, and I I did it. You know, the first three years, I was champion. I was contested the first year. Another as, team as won. What? Uh, well, I was I was Aladdin, and Father Trevor was um, Jafar. Oh, nice. And Ryan Mack was the magic carpet. Okay. Um, and we were second place in voting, but the Soggy Bottom Boys from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou uh-huh. were, uh, had the most votes, but they were the movie was made in 2000, and the theme was 90s movies. So they got disqualified. Okay. Uh, David Hall will not let me live that one down. So you, but, got, you got it. But of, I've got the plaque. Okay, so. out of contestant. <laughs> if you're listening to this up in Windsor, Colorado, um, and you know Father Greg Peterson, ask him if he's still upset that he didn't win uh as he came as a ghostbuster but he like went all out i mean it was like fog machines and everything it was amazing and uh he got totally hosed by some lame lame second rate act and i think he's still i think if somebody asks him he'll be like yeah i should have won that that was ridiculous there's usually like a little bit of a skit or like a punchline joke somebody throws when they're showing their costume off Uh and so the costume could be super subpar right but they were way funnier yeah and they win that is true uh this year theme is wild west so i decided to come as john wayne gretzky oh nice so i've got uh a cowboy hat with the boots but then a hockey jersey with like a blonde mullet wig and a hockey stick oh nice so hey you're doing something right it's good I'm just dressed like uh, my costume this year is the what I would look like as the dirt bag if I didn't become a pre- dirt bag climber. <laughs> I should have just thrown a rope over my shoulder and climbing. I was just climbing with one of your guys, Father, uh, not Father, Jason Dorito. Jason Dorito. Um, we started the same year in seminary. He uh, took two years off, kind of sort through. If he really wanted to do this, and he's back, we're all happy to have him back. But we were climbing the other day, and uh, when he left seminary. I was a better climber than him, uh-huh. and then he proceeded to uh, join Highlight Catholic Sports, and he was teaching kids climbing, and he is vastly 
he's improved to me now. He's got the build of a climber. He's like Just, long and skinny yeah. and lanky. Keep his, not that you're not long and skinny and lanky, but I'm you're not the long, exact skinny, opposite lanky. of yeah. all three of those things. I bet you could dyno though. Just bam. I definitely power. have the dynos better. Yeah. Than me. If I have to jump from one to the next, I got to beat. Yeah, that was his formation uh, issue. Is he needs to climb more? Yeah. And one of my formation goals is to help other guys achieve their formation goals. Right. And so I went climbing with. He's very thoughtless, you know. Yeah, so. Thoughtless, uh, thoughtful, selfless, and thoughtful. Thought- <laughs> <laughs> oh, give me another coffee. <laughs> You're very thoughtless. <laughs> sort that one out a bit. Um, no, I uh, I guess we'll just transition right in. I'm running out of stuff. Let's do it. Um, I want to talk about narrative and salvation history. Okay. Uh, narrative as kind of the, the personal narrative in light of, of God's bigger picture, which totally up your alley um, in fundamental, mm-hmm. uh, kind of the, the history of um, salvation from creation to uh, the incarnation of the God-man, saving moment and then moving towards uh, the eschaton, towards the second coming, when uh, the new Jerusalem will be established. And all of that is one story, and that's God's story of creation, redemption. Um, All of us then play uh, second fiddle bit parts, um, some larger than others, Uh, but we have a personal narrative that's united to the narrative of Christ, um, which is the Incarnation of God uh, in history, right? And history is itself narrative. Now, what's interesting about this for me, why I've been thinking about it, is um, we were talking in one of our classes about how we come to kind of know ourselves as persons. And one of those ways is relationally. Um, we, we don't know ourselves apart from our relations, uh, from our parents, from our friends, from the church. And one of those most important ones is your family, your parents. And your parents show you uh, that you have a narrative, that you had a beginning, and they had a history, and they came from someone, and they came from someone. And what's called the, uh, the filial promise, or the original promise, is that initially uh, we all then come from God, the Creator. And so the fact that we come from parents um, shows us that we have a past, uh, a past that comes out of, of love uh, and creation. And then because we have that promise of the past, we're able to move towards the future. Yeah. Um, more contemporarily uh, with the existentialists, kind of Sartre is one. Um, I was thinking about with this, there's an idea of episodic personhood rather than narrative personhood. Episodic meaning uh, one episode, beginning, middle, end, and then that episode set aside, and then you enter into a new episode, and you're a different person in each episode. So what I'm living right now is who I am and kind of what I did in the past isn't me. What I'll do in the future isn't me. There's only me right now, kind of detached from any sort of narrative. Um, I think of the stranger from Sartre and when he... Camus, right? Or sorry, that's Camus. That's right. <laughs> Correction. It's been a, been you're, a minute. You're just a thoughtless uh, podcast. thoughtless podcasting. Jeez. So we need a, I wanted to get uh, Father Tim Danaher a couple of emails. So, sorry, Camus, the stranger. Yes. And when he, the, the stranger um, kills the man on the beach, right? Uh-huh. And then he's on trial. And he's like, why am I on trial for this? This is, this, it's not me. That wasn't, that was, or, or it's all, all meaningless. You know, that was just a, a response I had in the moment. Um, but the difference between narrativity and uh, kind of episodic living is very prevalent in, I'd say, my generation. 
uh, and younger. Um, kind of the searching out an experience, uh, being being all in somewhere, and then just completely bailing on anything that had uh, tied you or you were accountable for, because now you can go self-create your, you know, a new person, um, moment to moment, and there's no connection to narrativity. The problem is, if there's no past, um, there's no promise of the future, and so you just live in this really weird uh, state that takes no accountability for anything. Mm. And so the last point before I throw it over to you, just get your thoughts, um, is the philosopher Alistair McIntyre talks about narrativity as accountability. He says it's distinctly human to have narrative because it's distinctly human to be accountable. He says the, the animal, the monkey or the dolphin or the cow will never be called to account for his life. But a man can be called to account for, why did you do that last week? Why did you do that two years ago? Uh, we live in, in this narrative because we are accountable, because we're rational, acting beings. Um, so I just want to hear where you're at. Yeah, okay. a lot of, those, those are the ideas. Yeah, I love it. We I got a lot. start the conversation. We got a lot in there. Uh, plenty to unpack. Let me ask you a question first before we start to kind of pull that all apart. Um, why this topic? Uh, because I, almost by temperament, uh, am way more episodic. Uh. But when I look back, even if I'm, I'm trying to separate or compartmentalize episodes of my life, I'm creating a narrative. Uh. I, I see myself in that time or that place, and that helps me to look forward. Um, part of my seminary process and formation has been kind of stabilizing and grounding and not running after the next idea uh, I want to go be a pilot. I'm going to go do that now or whatever. It's like, no, I'm entering into a life and a calling and a vocation, and I need to stabilize there. And that stabilize, or stabilization comes from knowing where I came from and now what I'm going to. Mm. But by temperament, I want to just jump to the next exciting thing. And I don't want to be tied down by vows or promises. Yeah. So that's why it intrigues me. Yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a very interesting like I said, there's a lot in there and appreciate you saying that. I'd like, I think what we do is let's start with, let's unpack a little bit. Let's do it in three parts. First part, story, anthropologically considered. Why are we made for story? And just talk about that. Secondly, theologically, you talked about just this meta narrative that Christianity claims. And then third, the breakdown of it, post modernity, the episodic man, the stranger, why Jacob Machado was drawn to existentialism. Uh, and I am as well. Um, well, I'm more of a Hegelian by temperament, so we're kind of the opposite. <laughs> we really are opposites. Father Mike Rapp, let's put him in there. He would be kind of postmodern. Um, so, yeah, so um, story. Amazon just spent, whatever, $300 million on the um, Rings of Power. Yeah, first season. And they had something like 25 million viewers or something crazy. Did you yeah. see it? I did. Okay, uh, we're not going to talk about it. Yeah. It would be a very interesting topic. Um, I just finished it last night. Kind of crushing on Galadriel a little bit. Uh, just the warrior, <laughs> blonde beauty elf. Uh, but other than that, you know, all of the Lord of the Rings nerds who are listening to this are freaking out because this isn't canonically the Silmarillion. And I, I get it. I get it. I've read the Silmarillion. I've read all the letters, um, everything like that. Um, Unfinished Tales? This, uh, no, uh. I haven't read that. I guess I'm not truly a Tolkien nerd. Um, <laughs> but... We love epic story. Yeah. Uh, we love it. And I think you can set aside um, the 
is this authentically Tolkien-esque um, and just say, as a story, it's pretty damn compelling. Um, We're trying to tell a story that it scopes um, a broad, broad time frame. Yeah. Um, which I think is part of epic. The epic story has a, it's not just a, a quick moment. Right. I mean, every, the classic novels carry from, you know, an entire life. Right. And that's the, that's the first thing is that, you know, Chesterton talks about um, we discover man, man discovers himself and he's already living humanity. We don't know exactly what it was like in the beginning. Um, Adam and Eve, we have, we have a glimpse into it, but we don't know, you know, tens of thousands of years ago, what was his life like? Chesterton describes it as like the first chapters of the book of humanity are ripped out. Mm-hmm. So you just have to start reading at chapter four or whatever. Um, but when we start reading in chapter four, think that human beings are just doing things. They're religious. They desire the transcendent and they tell stories and they interpret meaningfulness in light of stories. And that is distinctively, uh, distinctively human. Um, that whole point that, you don't think about ideas and you don't think about the meaningfulness of reality apart from story, that they're intimately connected. And I'm trying to tell my guys this in Introduction to Theology. I was telling them um, the importance of, of storytelling as a homeless, not like, you wouldn't believe what I had for breakfast this morning at the <laughs> pancake house, uh, but just the, the story of the North American martyrs, and we've been talking about that the last few months, are like just the way that I'm reading Steinbeck now, East of Eden. My God, don't read that before bed. Uh, I'll <laughs> tell you that much. But the way that the idea of original sin is encapsulated in the character of Kathy, for example, an un- unredeemed humanity, um, incredible, incredible um, story. Just It just grips me um, as dark as it is. Um, and it's, it's the same with, uh, the rings of power. So we're just made for story. But in the early days, what we see is epics. The epic story is the first thing, which is what epic is kind of the 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 total story. So think about Homer. Mm-hmm. Um, think about the the Iliad, you know, the, the Odyssey, Iliad, the Odyssey, Iliad by Virgil. These are the first stories. Um, epic poetry is the first thing that we see that arises uh, with kind of the dawn of writing. Uh, and the dawn of uh, of really kind of the golden age of humanity. I think what's interesting about those specific epics is they're also they're poetic, they're narrative, and they're religious. Mm-hmm. Um, they're telling the, the ethos of a, a people and a culture, um, which is the fact that as soon as we start recording, kind of written, which these were all uh, the Homer was orally transmitted for right. however many hundreds of years before it's even written down. Uh, so as soon as we're telling stories, as soon as we have language um, that's capable of telling stories, we're incorporating those three distinctly human elements. But I think even before that, uh, the cave paintings we find are telling a story. They're recounting something that was here in, mm-hmm. this, in this artistic manifestation. And I think that it's important for us as moderns to recover a sense of narrative, as you said. Narrativity, is that what you said? I like these kind of made-up intellectual words. <laughs> Way more fun. Na- yeah. Narratology. Narrativ- That's the study of narrativity. There you go, of <laughs> narrativity. Um, yeah, so um, I think we have, to, we have to kind of come back to that. Um, I spent the last two days up in the mountains working on a paper on atonement, and the priesthood will probably talk about it with you at some point. Um, but I was sitting thinking all day at this desk. And it, it was just, it was beautiful. I was just thinking through ideas and kind of 
synthesizing the the paper, putting the argument together for hours and hours and hours, just kind of in my head. And then I got up from the table and I walked over and immediately I was pissed off. I was like, why are there unclean dishes in the sink? And I started to think about the guys, uh, the seminarians who were with me. And I was like, oh, they left yesterday. That's your dishes. You didn't clean them after breakfast. You just started in on your work. And so it was like the, the, the realm of ideas. You can see why Plato was so drawn to like the fullness of reality is above the messiness. Um, and it's just the, these pure forms and ideas and kind of living in the mind. Um, we're drawn to that naturally. We want a kind of Gnosticized um, purity. And that means that story is not fundamental. Story is, is a means to an end. We want to get to the realm of the forms and just kind of bliss out there, right? Garansky, famous story, left his uh, hippie commune and he was studying Japanese and maybe or Chinese in Hawaii and uh, they he quit everything and he said they said where are you going? He said I'm going to listen to this the music of the spheres. I'm off to do this. It was this very kind of dramatic moment. He's running away though from uh, some things in his life and kind of we all do that. So stories are not just epic and beautiful and um, captivating, they're also really difficult. And when you, th- when you interpret your life as a story, not just as an idea, um, then all of a sudden you have to face aspects of story, uh, tragedy, uh, suffering, all of these different things that we don't want, um, but are, they're integral to the authentic story. Mm-hmm. You know, the story is, is, is something that plays out the, the battle over meaningfulness which means that there is this dark side. There's evil yeah. in me, in the world, and that has to be encountered uh, if I want to actually live out some kind of story or some kind of history. Yeah, as you say that, I think of uh, one of the critiques of narrativity that wants to go more episodic as the person is, is found in the, the episode or the, the particular now um, is this idea of, of the um, unreliable narrator. The, you, you can't trust somebody to tell their story truthfully. Uh, there's always revisionist storytelling going on when we tell and retell a story. Um, and I think that's compelling because we can lie to ourselves about our own motives or what we think somebody else might have been doing in an interaction. And I can retell the story to kind of paint myself in a better light or a worse light. And I was seeing there's some studies that um, in the, the revising of personal history – you would think it would always be like putting yourself in the positive light, uh-huh. but it's about equal mix, putting yourself or in the, in the negative light or the positive light in the story. So not everybody's not even revising their own history to be the hero sometimes. Um, but the fact that that's real, that we revise, um, makes memory such an important key to this. And the seeking of, of meaning is seeking truth as well. It's not just therapeutic. Um, it's not just story isn't just cathartic um, and narrativity ordained to uh, kind of the, the great story of God has to be ordered to truth. Um, and yeah. how we do that is, is I think a really interesting question. I don't know if we have time to get on, but I wanted to acknowledge that. Yeah, I, that think, is a I think that's good. And I, the, the postmoderns are really pressing us to acknowledge the messiness of things. Yeah. The revi- the revisionist, intentions which are good or bad or whatever but there also is when there's an a priori rejection of god so when you just start with denial of that uh the transcendentals they kind of fall 
there isn't this these things anymore. You can kind of placate to them. Ah, oh, what about the truth? But without God, without some kind of absolute origin and source of logos, meaningfulness, right? The search for meaning, it really does come down to well, why not start with skepticism? Why not start with that position and yeah. say, well, how do you know that this was the you know the founding of the United States was seventeen seventy six, or it should be. 1614 or whatever when the first slaves come that was just the story that you've been told is that this is this country and these are these ideas and these things and it's like but starting with skepticism is not the way that human beings are made yeah we don't we're not meant to do that that's something that happens when we get really wounded and and broken mm-hmm. and we say yeah but the the natural mode is ascent we've talked about this in past podcasts and so i while acknowledging the kind of messiness of that the postmoderns are saying which leads them to uh, a total kind of, I think, uh, rejection of um, the Christian meta-narrative, you know, which is the second point I would say that you were, you were kind of given us at the beginning was that Christianity makes an ultimate claim, mm-hmm. which is that we have the story. And that really pisses everybody off. Yeah, the story. The story. This is the story. Because everybody else, if you're skeptical of all stories, all stories have uh, kind of a, a flat um, value. Yeah. And you can increase or decrease that value kind of subjectively. But what's funny is within that, we still tell stories. We're yeah. still rewriting histories. I mean, every regime that's ever come to power fosters their own kind of mythos of how they came to be uh, or the state, what the state is, um, has a story of, of why they're the best you know, ruling party ever to be in, in power. Um, we tell stories because that's how humans respond. We, we naturally are in this story. And so we hear stories. We want to unite ourselves to stories. And so even the most skeptical who just say stories are only for power, um, it's something deep inside of humanity that responds to it. Yeah. So that's why it can be abused if it is, or uh, it's so prevalent, even if it's skeptical. It, you can't get away from story. And, and I think that we have to just staying on the, the Christian meta narrative here. Meta just means the, the kind of the total, the, 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 the kind of complete story. We have, to, we have to tell the story. But part of it is, you know, how do you get somebody from, you, you teach them Christ, you teach them the faith um, through story. But then also it's like they hit 18, they go to college, and it's like, that was VeggieTales, that was kind of fun. We sang some songs. It has nothing to do with life. It's not real. Like it doesn't have real bearing. What has real meaning is is Nietzsche and Sartre. This is where you really can roll up your sleeves and get into. It. This is a lot of college kids. Yeah. Um, and I, I I'm not exactly sure how we do that. I think that the the key is, it's not just story. It's history and ontology that make Christianity unique. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> history is something that comes primarily from the Jews. All right. So from the Old Testament, from all the way back. There is a continual story, but there's this confluence, this kind of fusion that happens uh, in the few centuries before Christ, but paves the way for the incarnation, where the Greeks who discovered being, who discovered logos, that there's meaningfulness, that there's this kind of key to understanding reality. They create metaphysics, which is the study of being itself. Um, Ontology is another word for metaphysics, for the study of being. When, When John... when when St. John, in his gospel, puts together the Logos, the Word became flesh, 
he is doing something that's simply unprecedented, which he's uniting ontology, being, truth, and he's also uniting history. Yeah. Became flesh, a fact, an event. So Christianity is an event. It's something that happened, but it also is meaningfulness. It's meaningful in a way that it interprets reality. It's not just, that was a cool story. Like Homer. Yeah, I like that. It's the story, the narrative, the it's interpreting history rather than us interpreting the story or us interpreting you know, subjectively into it. Right, so it's not just a story that tells a nice thing. Uh, East of Eden is a story by John Steinbeck that will contribute to my thought. It, it really is compelling. It, it strikes me, it, there's a number of things in it that I think are going to stick with me. I would not say Steinbeck is the way that I interpret reality. Mm. That's the difference. When, when, Christ, when Christianity makes the claim that this is the narrative, because it's the Logos, it, it, this is how you interpret everything. This is how you interpret and decide what kind of coffee you have in the morning, who you're friends with, where you go to college. Um, I don't know what kind of shaving cream you use. I, I don't know. Just everything gets <laughs> interpreted by reality uh, in light of this story, and that's very different, and that's for the postmoderns like the ultimate enemy because story has been... Uh, dissected as you said it's too kind of total it's too complete it's too much from the outside it's it's imposition it's an imposition on me as the the totally free agent who is always authentically self-defining uh the story's got to go yeah and if there is a story it's my story that i can go uh, jump into this experience jump out of have control over it um we people talk about adventure all the time but it's never adventure because it's always controlled yeah, uh, it's, I'm going to go have this adventure that I have paid for and planned and everything's going to be perfect and all the photos are going to line up and I'll be able to, you know, put it in the book and send it off and show my friends I did this. Um, but that's not, that's not forming me as a person and it's not helping me interpret my existence. Yeah. Yeah, I think that um, the episodic things, let's go into that now, um, if, if you don't mind. I know yeah. we are. Uh, moving along here, but um, tell me a little more about about what you what you mean when you say I'm kind of episodic <laughs> and not narrati- um, narrative narrativic. Yeah. I don't know what the. I think the key. Uh, I haven't read as much on the episodic side, um, but the one essay I wrote or read was kind of expressing, at least on the the surface, it seemed like a desire not to have responsibility for much um this author was defending i can still have uh, he, he self-expressed himself as episodic he said i can still be a great friend i can still be um you know a, a romantic partner i can still be um a son i mean he's like claiming all these things that are human that have ties but then he's like but i don't define myself by my history i define myself by right now how i'm feeling what i'm doing um and I think that's the, the episodic mentality is what I've done is in the past and so it doesn't matter, it doesn't affect me. Uh, and what I'm going to be in the future hasn't come yet, so why even think about it? Just, I'm me right now. Um, and so this, this episodic isn't even really closed into any sort of narrative structure in his mind. It's just the episode is me now. Um, and I think there's something a desire for a, a freedom um, to be outside of the messiness that that allows for. Because now I don't necessarily have to wrestle with 
having harmed a situation or broken trust or, you know, fractured a friendship. Um, and I don't have to really think about where I'm going. But for me, I look at that and that also terrifies me because I'm very prone to just follow. This is an exciting, even, even academically, like this is an exciting topic to go explore. And so I'm not going to read for my class, um, which is what I'm being asked for, for the vocation that I'm being called to. Um, and so there's a wrestling there of what's, what's pressing, present and pressing and exciting. Uh, and I just want to be, because that seems to be, you know, really all about me right now is, is I find my being in this, this exciting now. And that might actually be outside of the, the narrow path of truth that is, is moving me towards um, a true, true flourishing, true fulfillment. Uh, and so it's like this weird mix of knowing that it's probably, it's like candy. It's like eating candy, uh, really pleasurable now, and then just will make me sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the thing with the episodic versus narrative is I want to be detached from the messiness. I think it's another way, like you said, to get, just get out, um, but still claim a, a self-creating personhood because I can create now and now and now. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I have to say that um, as a German with uh, an excessive, excessively heightened sense of responsibility, I do not know what you're talking about. <laughs> like and, in the sense that it's yeah. not a struggle for me. I have plenty of other, the opposite struggles of just kind of, you know, systematizing and Aufgehoben is this great Hegelian word, just kind of every human beings, mm-hmm. everything into your system uh, of this is how everything has yeah. to be. So it's another kind of ins- insane attempt at being, <laughs> at, at being human, uh, which doesn't work, but um, this in particular. Well, it's, I, it's funny that you put, there's, there's a distinction or there's, there's even difference in our own, I guess, self story, um, how we see ourselves as interacting with the world and the story as it's passing by is different. And I think that's what the, um, the kind of the episodic writers, the philosophers that are arguing against like a strict reading of narrativity is almost like a predestination that's so rigid. You can't like escape. You're just, a, you know, words on the paper, um, is this sense of people experience the world and time a little bit differently. Um, and so uh, the, the episodic person might, you know, be really all in on you in the moment and be the best friend you can have, but isn't super conscientious. Like once you're kind of out of sight, um, he's kind of like, well, that, you know, I'm not even thinking of that person because what's in front of me. But as soon as you come back into my window, it's like, oh, it's great to see you. How are you doing? Sounds like the companions of Christ. (laughs) So there's a bit of this that I think they're talking about. There's some truth. But then they try to absolutize um, that this is how the person is. Yeah. Uh, And and so whenever we create a system that absolutizes who we are, um, there's – we walking on on daggers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's – yeah, it's interesting. I haven't really thought about this um, as much. I haven't heard that phrase, read those guys a little bit, but the notion of episodic kind of presumes a fragmentation of human life. So that's just presumed. Like there is no there is no organic unity to things. But one, one response to these guys is just like, what if love is real? Like what if love is actually an integrating and unifying source? Then you, then the, the, kind of endless fragmentation you don't put the you don't have to put the pressure on yourself to try and create the perfect episode for right now yeah uh well what if the 
what if love, like true love, the real meaning of love, um, what if it was the same as this pursuit of meaningfulness? Because mm-hmm. that's what the that's at the heart of the Christian claim. That's what's unbelievable about it. You know, what if all of the woundingness and damaging of my experience of being a human being was actually sourced and integrated in a universal story that says, oh, Jacob hurt you? Well, you can either recreate yourself and avoid him, or you can locate that experience in a totalizing story which say that Jesus Christ atoned for those sins, that what you did to me has already been bought, it's been ransomed and paid for and done. And I can subjectively appropriate that. What what if that was real? Now, I think there's all kinds of mechanisms and frameworks that the postmodern man has already... There's a kind of liquidity to the experience of a modern person that that's already collapsing and so we're already kind of moving into this and now we find ourselves in this kind of insane moment of self-creation um and an ideological takeover um that that all of this is flowing out of kind of the existentialist project and the the episodic mm-hmm. um because now it's like on a micro on a micro level like my episodes are snapchat yeah so it's not 30 the, seconds or less yeah it's not Camus. it's not these longer kind of moments it's just literally a second mm-hmm. so yeah the uh <laughs> sorry we're working this out because this i'm not as um refined in my thought with any of this and i'm probably not even giving the best picture of what any of these thinkers um are presenting in these but it's something that i want to wrestle with and the love element uh is very key especially when we look at human relations um and marriage as, as kind of a sacrament witness symbol of God's love for man. Um, a big reason, or the reason we talk about the indissolubility of marriage as a sacrament is it is making a promise of love uh, that is rooted in history. It's a promise uh, that isn't made just in the moment of feeling, but it's a promise made from past experiences with the person to the point of promising yourself forever in marriage. And then when it gets hard, you remember the promise. That's why the vows of the, of the wedding rite are so important mm-hmm. that, you know, uh, in good times and in bad and sickness and in health, uh, we remember the promise. And so, as you just mentioned with God, which is what marriage points to, is God's uh, taking on flesh to come and wed the church. Uh, the bride of Christ, that love is indissoluble. That love is, that that has been made, that promise has been made. And so now we can interpret our life within that. Uh, and in our interpersonal lives, I've promised, um, you know, in, in a marriage, the couples have promised, the couple has promised each other, there's forgiveness is now the way. Forgiveness and bearing with, that's love. Um, and you can be sure of that because of the promise. And the episodic mindset says no promise is ever really lasting because anything can come or go. I was looking for a Balthazar quote uh, as you were speaking, but I think that's, uh, it's like chilling. I mean, I was just like, I'll, I'll just use this to torture <laughs> Jacob because it talks about a man coming to this point in his life when he, um, he has to vow his love. He has to. He has to define himself. And at that point... He cannot go back, yeah. no matter what he wants to do. Um, he, it's, it's a very kind of... Uh, oh, here we go. It's actually Ratzinger. This is from a first Mass homily. 
So they, in the old rite, um, they used to bind, actually bind the hands of the priest. So they would wrap them. Mm. Um, and now they consecrate it, and then they, they do a little kind of once over. But <laughs> as you move to the side. But here's what Ratzinger, here's how he spiritually interprets that. He says, he's talking about the priest. He says, his hands are bound and will never belong to him again. His hands are bound and will never belong to him again. His very being is bound to God. His complete nature is bound to God. Those times of dreamy hope. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Those times of dreamy hope in which all paths appear open and all possibilities seem to beckon are over. Forever, he has placed his bound hands into God's hands. Forever, he has placed his bound hands into God's hand. I wrote that twice, sorry. Uh, It is God who now defines and determines the path and the possibility, and he alone. I remember thinking that was pretty exciting, um, approaching my ordination. Now being 11 years out, I'm like, yeah, I feel that. So you I'm, thought that I'm was bound. exciting. Yeah. Like that was enticing and yeah, exciting. Because yeah, yeah. I read that and I'm like, what am I doing? Right, right. And that shows the, like, the real difference in how... But, but, but later on, you're like, oh, what have I done? Yeah. You know, you're like... But I love looking back at the story that I've told yeah. or I've been part of. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's a great line. I mean, imagine hearing that from Ratzinger as you're a young, as you're, this is your first mass. It is God who now defines and determines your path. Uh, and somehow in the mystery of that, man, it's, it's tough. Uh, you look at it and you're like, man, that's crazy. I chose this. I'm happy I chose it, but also like I'm bound. And we just don't like feeling bound. We want to be boundless. Yeah. And I think there's something of our spiritual um, composition that says I'm made for kind of a boundlessness, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean uh, an untethered will in my finite existence as a man. It means yeah. it. Me- we're talking about the mystery of eternal beatitude in heaven and because the boundlessness of God's of the vision of God and union with Him. That's what we're made for. But in me, I want to do something. Yeah, as a created finite being, if we try to get that boundlessness, we dissipate kind of completely. Yeah. Um, but when we, but we have this spiritual immaterial soul, which has this capacity for that boundlessness. And you're just like, how does that interact? And it's only in the truly boundless and eternal God, uh, that, that we interact. Ratzinger again, he's got a quote where he talks about, um, the Holy Spirit as the source of ecclesiology in the church. And he talks about the Holy Spirit is, um, that which unites and abides. And in the context of this, he mentions that love can never be known in a particular moment. You can never know love as love is, because love is eternal and steadfast and abiding. So it might look like love right now, and in the next moment, you break it, and oh, I guess it wasn't love. He says love can only be known in the eternity. Er, in eternity. Yeah, that's... that's- and, yeah, and so we, we experience uh, powerlessness or lovelessness in a moment. Um, and what do we do? Well, it's like, I wish I was Walter Mitty right now, and we could just take off and go to Iceland, you know, or whatever. Um, this is kind of, I, I feel the same thing, you know. Yeah. It's not just, I'm not just talking about <laughs> you, the existentialist, but um, there is that deep sense of like, but at the at the core of, we just, as Christians, one of the great things about being in, in a postmodern world is that, um, the ethos around us is not Christian, which means that we have to reflect more deeply on the, the real core of what we're about. And what are we about? At the, the origin of being is love, which makes being itself a gift. 
but that the way that we learn how to love is by realizing that love desires to make a vow. Mm -hmm. Love desires to bind itself, that the way to a boundless freedom, which is God, is through the binding of oneself, whether in holy orders or religious vows um, or in marriage. Yeah, in, and I in, love... In the vows of marriage. We, we talk about marriage versus religious life or, or priesthood almost as conflicting or like against each other at times, um, sometimes unintentionally, but we kind of put them as a part. But they're, they're the same. You put them together. They're this way of making that promise of love, making the vow of love, which then moves us ultimately to God. Uh, and they're, they're together in that regard. They're not opposites. Um, they're different modes, and, and we can talk about the distinction there in a later podcast. I yeah. think. But, but they're together. To make that human move of experiencing love to then promise the eternity of love. When you experience it, you want to be in it forever. And you can only know it in eternity. Yeah, that Ratzinger line these is very interesting because we're searching for the boundlessness of eternity. But the only way we can experience love, which can only be known in eternity, is through the binding. Yeah. And an act of, of completely binding myself, which you're going you're gonna to make in a couple months. Um, the immolation and, of yeah. the will, and you think it's John 15 and Jesus with abiding, that I will abide in you, that as I abide in the Father, you will abide in me, that my joy will be complete. Um, this joy, this love, this abiding is all in this letting, you know, Christ taking the chalice that the, that the Father gives him. Yeah. This abiding in the will of, of the love. And story, kind of coming full circle, maybe this is the last thing I'll say. Stories find their origin in the gift of self, in relationship, in the binding of oneself to another. You and I don't have a story to tell unless we, in some ways, are bound together. Um, I showed up at my uh, sister's house and was talking on the phone to somebody, and I was like, I'm sorry, i got to let you go. I'm being attacked by Buzz Lightyear and Woody <laughs> and a random G.I. Joe, and they arrested me and brought me into the basement. And this is part of the story of their life. And these are the kind of memories that I just want to hold on to, right? Um, Phil Bartline's, we were doing dishes, and uh, he was playing some Morgan Wallen, and I was making the girls dance with me just to make them, ah, you know, kind of freak out. And it was like, these are these moments of like these little stories these little narratives called families happened because two people bound themselves in God together and through that binding are experiencing the eternity of love uh, and the boundlessness of, of eternal love. But that's a mystery that if we just live this kind of episodic self-creation, choose your own adventure, live in the moment, be... Uh, do not attach to or adhere to anyone or anything. Well, you're never going to live in love, and you're ultimately never going to find true meaningfulness because yeah. it can't be found within us. Yeah, we we can't create it. We'll always be. I think it was Thomas. It was Thomas or Augustine talks about. They probably both did. Um, the infinite desire inside of man, and that they man wants to go and experience every possible experience. Um, and then he says, but once you've experienced, even if you had the lifespan and the energy and the ability and the means to experience everything in this side of creation, <laughs> you would still have a desire. You would still desire desire. Hmm. And he says that 
itself points to God and points to God being the only one who can fulfill. And so it's like, okay, I don't have to run after every possible experience in this life. I don't have to run after every trip, every, you know, every city, every uh, extreme sport event, every man or woman. Like, it's just God is the answer that you're desiring for. And if you run to its conclusion, we're still desiring desire and desiring love, um, which can't be held outside of eternity. So when we've passed through everything, we still have that desire for God. Um, that's where the, the infinite whole uh, that can only be filled by God kind of mm-hmm. comes from. And I think it was Augustine first that Thomas kind of cleaned, yeah, cleaned up a little bit. Yeah, that's beautiful. And hell being unfulfilled desire. Uh, and the way to fulfillment of desire, so much of that is around um, the renunciation of desire, not choosing to do what I want to do, especially when I'm bound, when my heart is bound. So anyways, I look forward to the binding of your soul in uh, Holy Orders in a couple of months and the story soon that begins. And very soon. That's right. Um, <laughs> yeah, shout outs. I love watching you just, uh, just squirm a little bit in the chair. <laughs> no, I bring it up. I thanks awesome. for thanks I for it. engaging the topic. I uh, yeah, third topic in a couple maybe four weeks, and I'm just like I don't have anything. Oh, this is super interesting. Uh, clean to put out, but uh, no, yeah, I mean, I was just I was it. just talking about this. Like ideas have to be reimmersed in story when you're when we're preaching, when we're talking to kids, when we're doing everything, um, anything like. This is the story is the is the river that the the boat so to speak of of ideas kind of pass through. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> well, you're looking up yours. I think uh, one of the great joys in life is seeing stories kind of come to a natural conclusion in your life. Um, and I've had a couple of those moments now uh, where it's like a story had begun maybe in high school or college, and then it kind of like reaches a, a conclusion, and you're like, hey, that that was beautiful, and there's meaning there, and mm-hmm. I can I can hold on to the story with, and it can transform me. And the people that were part of it matter, uh, but it's not like this creation thing. It's a, it's a receiving thing again. Nice. Uh, okay, two shout-outs. Uh, Josh Abraham. I don't think I know you, but you're friends with Brother Kristen, the Capuchin. Cool guy. You know him, yeah. Yep. And I think you gave us a bottle of bourbon. This thing showed up on my <laughs> desk. I didn't know where it was from. It was really good. Uh, we enjoyed it. It's gone. Uh, but I think that's from you, Josh. So thank you and shout-out to you. And then... A shout out and uh, a check out. This is kind of pairs well with this topic, which is my buddy Fa- Father Nate Liberté up in St. Paul, Minneapolis, uh, did a podcast with some friends. Um, this whole life is what it's called. And episode three, the verdict is in. Uh, Father Nate is a he's a deep thinker and he's worth uh, thinking of, or listening to. So the podcast is called This Whole Life, and I'm not sure if he's just on episode three or if he's doing it all the time. But um, they're they're definitely worth looking at, checking out. So, there you go. Yeah, I uh, just want to shout out, I guess, Father Harold Escarciga okay. of Phoenix, um, because fitting to this topic, and one of my peer evals a couple, uh, maybe a year or two ago, he said, sometimes Jacob presents himself as the main character of an existentialist novel, and he could probably work on that. <laughs> I love it. Don't change that. <laughs> I so I said it. there's a there's a little I told him I said there's a bit of a joy in it too there's, yeah. there's a fun entering in the absurd did you see how other people squirm who want everything you know ordered just as I squirm when you tell me like you're gonna be bound well that's why it's very interesting that you and my father Mike and then father Sean and I would come probably come from the other side it's an interesting blend two Hegelians two Heideggerians whatever you are so all right let's go trick or treat we're not doing that no but 
let's go <laughs> drink some beers with the boys and, and pray for the dead this, this pray month. for the dead uh happy all saints day and uh yeah praying for the dead this november um and man it's gonna be advent before we know it, we're rolling into the new year so all right thanks buddy thanks for a good topic god bless y'all